This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love It podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Hi, my name is Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Christy is an advanced placement and international baccalaureate literature teacher. And Gary is an AP, IB, psychology, and history teacher, as well as my husband. We're going to walk you through some of Western civilization's greatest works, some you were forced to read, some you may just be curious about, some you may be studying right now. Christy will break down the story and highlight what makes these works a part of the so-called canon. And Gary's going to muse on what they mean, historically, psychologically, or just randomly. So coming to you from Memphis, Tennessee, let's move on to Episode 3 of What's Great About the Scarlet Letter. The title of Episode 3 is The Narcissism of Chillingsworth and Dimsdale. Let's recap. Episode 1, we analyzed Chapter 1 in a few cases, almost word for word, laying the foundation of where Hawthorne is taking us. We gave some introductory information on who Hawthorne is and the world in which he lived. We discussed the straw man he was creating with his version of the Puritans, and we watched as he introduces us to the prison, literally and symbolically, where we find love, judgment, but mostly human frailty, ideas at the heart of this great book. Episode 2, we took a chapter-by-chapter tour of chapters 2 through 8. We meet Hester on the scaffold as she holds Little Pearl and see Chillingsworth for the first time. We watch as Hester and Chillingsworth meet in jail and he confronts her with her crime. He makes her swear she will never reveal his identity. We visit Hester's home and see how she is raising Little Pearl. We watch her confront the church fathers as they try to take away Pearl at age three and we hear an impassioned defense of her motherhood by Dimsdale, a man we now know to be Little Pearl's father. Episode 3 is going to take us from chapter 9 through chapter 12. So let's start with chapter 9 and 10. Chapters Hawthorne titles The Leech, and then The Leech and His Patient, and really focus first on who is this character called Chillingworth and how he has changed over the course of the story. So let's start with the title. The title is Leech, which is really interesting because 
as everything else in this book, it carries lots of symbolism. And in this case, some threefold symbolism. First of all, if you're going to look up leech in the dictionary, the very first thing you're going to see is that it's an archaic term for physician. So in this most literal sense, when Hawthorne titles the chapter The Leech, his audience clearly understands that this is the chapter about the doctor. However, we also know that a leech is a blood-sucking parasite. And interestingly enough, and this is just kind of an aside, during Hawthorne's lifetime, the use of leeches in the medical field was absolutely pervasive all over the world. France, just to give one example, imported 40 million leeches every year. And it's not just in the West. Countries in Asia and the Middle East also imported leech, leeches. In fact, at the Royal College of Physicians in 1840, they made, they made a statement that said, the bloodletting is a remedy which, when judiciously employed, is hardly possible to estimate too highly. However, as we more clearly think about it today, and of course the symbolic meaning, which is almost cliched for us, a leech is that person who extorts profit from or sponges off of others. What I find very interesting about that is how applicable the term is today. By the time we get done discussing Chillingsworth, we are going to have a good working idea of what is meant by the term leech. Before we do that, though, I wanted to take a historical moment to point out something I think is really interesting, and it has more to do with the author than it does the actual book, but it applies in the book because it shows up in the book. Hawthorne lived, as we pointed out before, at a very interesting time in American history. He is there during all the great reform movements, but even more importantly, the Second Great Awakening, which was a huge religious revival in the United States during that time period. The Second Great Awakening really reaches um, widespread appeal by about 1820, which is about the same time that Hawthorne is coming into adulthood. And so he's growing up in the crossroads of the intersection between the old um, Congregationalist church of the past where they focused on a lot of rational and deistic thinking as we transition into the Romantic period, which now uh, the religion is reflected by a lot of enthusiasm and emotion. So we see Hawthorne living at the time period when we exit Enlightenment-style rational Christianity, which almost views God as a mathematics problem, and we cross over into a very emotionally-based, experiential, self-interpretive type of religion. And I feel like in the next following chapters, when we look at these discussions between Dimsdale and Chillingsworth, we see almost a war between those two ideas being fleshed out in these two characters as they discuss the role of religion in the future. Well, looking at Chillingsworth uh, from a more personal standpoint, I want to point out that up to this point in the book, Chillingsworth has not really been an evil person. The antagonist that we're going to see him kind of transform into uh, starting in these chapters. Chapter 10, and I know that's a jump, describes him as saying that throughout his life he had been calm in temperament, kindly, though not of warm affections, but ever and in all relations with the world, a pure and upright man. So he comes into this little town and they really see him kind of as a godsend. Up to that point, the only doctor that they had had in the whole community was like this old deacon with no medical training at all. And so Roger Chillingworth shows up. They think of him as a 
quote, brilliant acquisition, because not only does he have um, the training from Europe, but he's been in the captivity with these Indians, so he's real familiar with the roots of the ground and, and all the ways that they could um, apply medicine uh, in their context. So he is a natural fit, and as the health of Reverend Dimsdale kind of descends, the whole community kind of forces the two together uh, in a way that is uncomfortable to Dimsdale even from the very beginning. However, because he's getting sicker and sicker and his form is more emaciated and he's they say he's decaying. He's, he always has his hand over his heart, giving this indication of pain. They're almost thrown together. And, of course, Chillingworth uh, picks up on this and is very happy to uh, lend his services. However, he waits until Dimsdale asks or requests for his professional advice. And once he does, he makes his move and he kind of moves in on the doctor or on the on the reverend. And what they do is they take these long walks on the beach and they're supposed to be talking and um, Chillingworth is gathering plants and and they investigate his soul because they do see this connection even at that time between the body and the intellect and the heart and all that kind of thing. And so it's important for a physician to know uh to know your past. And of course, at this point, he's still considered a, quote, kind and friendly physician. Interesting. Is that a metaphorical long walk on the beach? Or were they really walking on <laughs> no, the beach? No, I think they really were. <laughs> okay. Um, this is what jumps out to me right away in Chapter 9 about Chillingsworth and uh, instantly made me start to not like the guy. Uh, in the opening paragraphs, he's talking about seeing Hester for the first time. And uh, the comments that Hawthorne makes about Chillingsworth's thinking is, there remained nothing but the contagion of her dishonor. Then he goes on to say, he, being Chillingsworth, resolved not to be pilloried beside her on her pedestal of shame. So immediately, this guy has come in, changed his name, from Chillingsworth, because it says right here, under the appellation of Roger Chillingsworth, the reader will remember, was hidden another name, which its former wearer had resolved should never be more spoken. He's assuming, or am I correct? Is he assuming a new identity here? Absolutely. And at this point, a lot of people understandably have sympathy for Chillingsworth because um, he has suffered, depending on how you look at it, uh, an injustice. Here is a man who has taken his wife from him and, and stolen his life for him. So what you're going to see and what, as a reader, interprets this to be a universal version of a man, I guess, if you want to look at it that way, what do you do when somebody does something to you that is a perceived wrong? You know, you're, you are a victim. And so in this case, you can still see that Chillingworth is a victim, and the first thing he does is he changes his identity and says, "I don't want, you know, I don't want to to own that to some degree." He doesn't want people to know what happened to him or what the embarrassing thing that I guess that uh, she had done to him, so to speak. 
I understand that, but here's my take on this, and I guess I'm stepping outside the book here a little bit. If I would have been Chillingsworth, where I had survived being lost at sea, I'd survived living amongst the Indians for years, and survived all these great difficulties that apparently were part of Chillingsworth's past, and I walk out of the forest unannounced and see this public shame, I would tend to think, that's not as bad as all the past experiences I've just been through. So my take on this as I'm reading this is that, wow, his uh, anger and, and rage are almost unmerited at this point. He has decided to focus on shame more than anything else. And I feel like the focus on shame is the setup for the next few chapters. Well, that's true. And Dimsdale took something from him. I mean, it depends on how he views Hester. Clearly, they didn't have a loving relationship. They established that early on, but he, in a sense, owned her. She was his, and he's taking this guy's took it, and he didn't have the right. And so there's that injury, that initial injury, and what he does with it uh, is what comes through. Well, let me say this. People who think they own other people in relationships is a very important symptom, I think, for what we're going to see in the future chapters. So here they are. They're, he's attached himself to to the um, to the minister, and this relationship develops. And of course, another uh, point of irony, and this book is full of irony, is that everyone's so happy that uh, that they're together. Um, Chillingworth and Dimsdale have an opportunity to move in together. There's a widow who has a house. And she invites them to move in with them. And, of course, everyone thinks they should, including all the blooming damsels, because he won't pick anybody to be his wife because he's so spiritually devoted to priestly celibacy, as they think, as an article of his church discipline. So he's so devoted to God, he's exercising this commitment by being a celibate. So they think, well, he needs to move in with the widow and the doctor. At least somebody will be watching out for him. And another point, I think, of irony is the idea that she puts him in a, in a... There's two apartments in this widow's house. There's the front apartment and the back apartment. And she puts him in the front, which is decorated uh, with a tapestry of David and Bathsheba, which is just kind of goofy. I mean, it doesn't have any deep meaning unless you know the story of David and Bathsheba. Of course, Bathsheba is the beautiful woman, the wife of Uriah the Hittite in, the, in 2 Samuel, the Old Testament. And David wanted her. Uh, and David took her and had her husband murdered. And so every day when um, Dimsdale goes home, he has to sit there and stare at David and Bathsheba on the wall of his study as he reads his Bible. And, of course, on the other side of the house, Chillingworth has his laboratory where his drug and his chemicals and uh, you know all the smoke that, that comes out of there. And, of course, at, at some point they're going to think it's actually... Uh, smoke being diffused uh, from hell itself. <laughs> I think it's interesting that they do have a bromance developing here. Um, it goes on to say, there was a fascination for the minister in the company of the man of science in whom he recognized an intellectual cultivation of no moderate depth or scope. So these two smart guys were hanging out with each other, enjoying the company of two smart guys. Not the less, however, Though with a tremulous enjoyment, he did feel the occasional relief of looking at the universe through the medium of another kind of intellect than those with which he had habitually held converse. So he, Dimsdale's enjoying 
a worldview discussion with a man of science as opposed to another man of religion. Or kind of like what you were talking about, the, the two worldviews co- collapsing or contrasting themselves. Yes, All yes, right. very much so. And um, it goes on to talk about the moral scenery, the novelty of which might call up something new to the surface of their characters. And it goes on to say Chillingsworth strove to go deep into his patient's bosom and find out or delve among his principles. It goes on to say... This is what I think is really interesting, a kind of intimacy. So it's not real. And I'm going to point that out. A kind of intimacy, as we have said, grew up between these two cultivated minds, which had as wide a field as the whole sphere of human thought and study to meet upon. They discussed every topic of ethics and religion, of public affairs and private character. They talked much on both sides of matters that seemed personal themselves, and yet no secret ever stole out. <laughs> so they they had great compatibility, but the, they didn't trust each other for any kind of intimacy. Well, it's funny because I guess that's something that happens on an intuitive plane. And it suggests also that the community understands that this guy is creepy. I think it's really funny that um, they throw in this historical allusion to a guy named Thomas Overbury. Uh, and Thomas Overbury was this super famous murderer or murder in 1613, and it was this love triangle over in Europe that made the news and was a sensation. And basically, this guy named Thomas Overbury had this friend uh, named Carr, and they were kind of working their way up through the courts. And of course, this woman got involved, and the, this woman and Carr she started having this affair. She was married. And Overbury got jealous uh, of Carr and wrote this poem called The Wife, which was talked about how horrible she was, basically. I know that's oversimplifying it. All that to say, Overbury ended up dead. He was murdered uh, through the poison. And these people in this town, they know the story, and they're, they're thinking, I think Chillingworth must have known that guy who got murdered. And then they start associating, do you think he knows think he's putting poison in the in the preacher's you know coffee or whatever they don't say coffee but the idea is they start to wonder if Chillingworth is killing Dinsdale and they settle in on the idea at, that well God has brought a devil into Dinsdale because he's just so holy he needs to have that well it's really interesting that Hawthorne wants to include this as part of the subtextual narrative going on the whole chapter starts with Chillingsworth being a providential blessing that just fell out of the sky. Here's this learned man who shows up in this wilderness to take care of us. And by the end of the chapter, they're gossiping about him being a potential murderer. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Well, and so moving on to chapter 10, and this is where you were talking about this great conversation that we're privy to. He opens up the window into one of their conversations, and it's an important conversation because what is going on is they, they're in a graveyard, and um, Chillingworth goes over to what is called a bundle of unsightly plants. And this kind of sparks a conversation. So they see some, basically they see some weeds, and weeds is a big symbol. I told you, all of nature is a symbol. And so the weeds are growing, these dark, ugly weeds are growing out of this grave, and, and Chillingworth is basically going to say, see, those black weeds are because there's a dark heart underneath there. That guy has an unspoken crime, and nature itself is trying to reveal 
his sin. And of course, he goes on to say, he should have told. He should have told his secret. He would be better off and all that. And he says, don't you think, doctor, that if you have a secret, uh, you should tell it? And of course, Dimsdale's going to say, no, all secrets are only going to be revealed on the great judgment day. But when they are revealed, the person who has the secret is not going to be sad to reveal it. He's going to be happy. In fact, he says, it will be with joy unutterable that he'll tell his secret. To which Chillingworth is going to say, well, if you're going to have joy unutterable, why wait till you're dead? You can have joy unutterable now. Tell this, this person, so to speak, should tell the secret. And and Dimsdale counters with what most people do because he's taking it away from being about him and throwing it back on this generic person. He goes, many uh, people on their deathbed uh, tell me s secrets and they have relief. I've seen it with myself. And even as one who draws his last breath, uh, let's go of the secret. And then, of course, Chillingworth says, Yes, but then some men bury their secrets. <laughs> and then Dimsdale begins, and we see one reason why Dimsdale, in his own mind, and you can tell me, is he telling, is he lying to himself? But Dimsdale says, well, there are reasons that people keep their secrets. He goes, what if they have a zeal for God's glory and man's welfare, and they shrink from displaying themselves black and filthy in the view of men, because thenceforward no good can be achieved and no past evil can be redeemed. So, meaning kind of it doesn't serve anybody any good at sometimes to tell people their sins. And you think about himself being a preacher, and he's thinking, I'm a preacher. Of course, he's not saying this directly, but this is what he means. I'm a preacher. People look up to me. They see God in me. If I fall, I don't just fall alone. I bring everybody down. So I can't. For the sake of others, I have to present this, this image of purity. And he doesn't view it as hypocrisy, but he views it as almost defending or building the reputation of God himself. And so he has to do this. What do you think? Uh, I understand his reasoning on that. And for me, this is the chapter where the full brunt of Chillingsworth's creepiness really came out to me. Uh, to go back to the discussion about the, the black weeds growing on the grave, you have the most absolute scientific person in the community saying something very romantic. You went to your grave with deep, dark secrets, and because of that, black weeds grow on your grave. There is absolutely no scientific <laughs> way to prove that there is even any connection between those two things. So you have the man of science very deliberately, romantically trying to manipulate a secret out of this guy. And for me, it starts off in the first paragraph of this chapter, where this is about Chillingsworth. He, but as he proceeded, a terrible fascination, a kind of fierce, though still calm, Necessity seized the old man with its gripe and never set him free again until he had done all of its bidding. To me, this is Chillingsworth's obsession is beginning to set in. And what's so scary about Chillingsworth's obsession with Dimsdale is it's highly calculated, it's highly detached. And we're going to have some great psychological delving into some of these things going on in this chapter and the next chapter. 
but I feel like... But he feels justified. I mean, he feels like I have every right to do this because you took something from me. You deserve this. And when he's conf- and people may identify with that. Even at this, sh- when he confronts Dimsdale's, quote, hypocrisy, he says, a man who lives like that deceives himself. This kind of guy is just a- afraid to take up the shame that rightfully belongs to him. He is in love with man. It is not for zeal of God's service that he does these things. They don't coexist in a heart. And he, so he's accusing uh, Dimsdale of being selfish, of being um, a coward, and of being prideful. Well, let's talk about being a coward for just a minute. If Chillingsworth feels so wrong, why did he not have the personal courage to open this discussion up directly and make his accusations and have this conversation face-to-face? What is so disturbing about Chillingsworth is he goes underground and he goes subterranean, and now he's very manipulative and he's very calculating. I think he's more dangerous than he ever could have been. And it also proves to me that the shame that he feels over the Hester situation is a deep, deep shame wound that's going to play out in the next chapter. And it's way beyond what a healthy person would have done. A healthy person would have confronted the situation and had had words and had it out. And nope, he's going to make it his mission in life to destroy this man emotionally. Well, he certainly challenges him here because he says, if such a person who's hiding a secret in the name of God really wants to glorify God, let them not lift heavenward their unclean hands. If they would serve their fellow man, let them do it by making manifest the power and reality of conscience and constraining them to penitence or peniten- eh, penitential self-abasement. Wouldn't that be better, oh wise and pious friend? Let me tell you something about Mr. Chillingsworth right here. This is incredibly manipulative. It's highly manipulative. How so? He is trying to use Dimsdale's logic and morality to back him into a corner to get information he can use against him. This is getting to be borderline evil to me. This is somebody who um, has some psychopathic tendencies going on here. So you don't see any uh, true spirituality emanating from Chillingworth? None at all. What I see is an intellectual chess match going on between two people. Dimsdale is trying to defend himself and not give his secrets up, and Chillingsworth is pressing in every logical way he can think of it through discussion to try to get Dimsdale to confess. Well, he doesn't, and just about this time... Hester and Little Pearl come, you know, be bopping up the road. And Hester is, well, not Hester, Pearl is picking up flowers, taking a handful of flowers and um, putting them along on her mother's scarlet letter. Uh, And and Hester is just leaving the flowers there. And Roger Chillingworth is going to look at the child and ask an interesting question. Uh, he says, "Is the child is the imp altogether evil?" So they're they're going to focus in on Pearl. She is she an evil person? She is um, conceived over evil, and of course, Dimsdale is going to say, um, "Well, she's there's nothing wrong with her, except she was um, conceived in a broken law." And of course, Pearl 
isn't a real character. And, and by the sense that she's not a regular three-year-old and the things that she does, he's not trying to make her realistic at all. She's clapping her hands and she's playing around and she's laughing loudly and she says these things, come away, mother, come away, or yonder old black man will catch you. He hath got hold of the minister already. Come away, mother, or he will catch you. But he cannot catch little Pearl. And this mocking that, you know, that she does, basically accusing the minister of, because the black man is not a person. That's Satan. So he says, the, Satan's got a hold of, got a hold of minister. And who knows if she's talking about a metaphorical black man or if she's calling Chillingworth a black man. But she's definitely making fun uh, of what she's seen as they sit around and talk about her. I think it's interesting that Pearl has been used as kind of an intuitive piece. It seems like whenever something needs to be said that the characters can't say, Pearl comes in and kind of clears the air with her little three-year-old observation of adults. And she's obviously able to look at Dimsdale and see that he's tortured and just in horrible shape. And she, in her little childish three-year-old way, says, mm, yeah, he's, he's in bad trouble. And, of course, Chillingworth doesn't miss one opportunity to bring it back to the confession of the secret, because he says, look at Hester. Do you think she's any less miserable because of that scarlet letter on her chest? And then he's going to say, no, I think uh, she's better off. It, it's better for the sufferer to be free to show his pain, just like she is, than to cover it all up in his heart. And they get you know closer and closer to the heart of the matter, uh, is as do you will you um will you tell the secret and of course it isn't too long to where it leaves the second or this third person discussion and it's almost like Chillingworth you know says ah I'm done with this and he actually changes it into the second person and he says you better tell me I know you have a secret there's something going on there's a sickness there's a sore place in your spirit it's manifesting in your body you need to tell your doctor. And then Dimsdale is going to look at him in the eye, which he doesn't normally look at him in the eye. And he says, no, not to thee, not to any earthly physician. If it's the soul's disease, then I'll commit myself to the physician of the soul, but not you. So basically, he's saying, not just no, but hell no, in the literal or figurative sense of the word of hell. I'm not telling you. And, of course, he does this with a wild, hot, passionate, you know, gesticulation. And, of course, Chillingsworth comes away from that whole experience with kind of a, a chin-rubbing expression of, mm-hmm, I'm getting close. I'm getting close to what the issue is. And uh, so now we have Chillingsworth trying to be a psychologist. Chillingsworth is saying things like, there are bodily diseases, there are spiritual diseases, and you are the person who has most closely combined the body and the spirit, more so than anybody I know. So whatever is affecting you spiritually is affecting you physically, and you should tell me. Uh, wow, this guy, he is never ending in his attempt to try to worm his way into Dimsdale's inner psyche. And of course, the best part of the whole chapter is at the end, and I love this, it's hysterical, so Dimsdale, it's noontime. He's a, he's you know exhausted. He falls into what they call a deep, deep slumber, sitting in his chair with a large black leather volume open before him on a table. 
So he's there asleep, and Chillingworth walks in, and um, he advances directly in front of him, and he laid his hand upon his bosom, thrusting aside the vestment. In other words, he opens up his shirt, which is weird, but um, what we notice there is his reaction. We're never told what he sees, but what, what the reader sees is he Dimsdale, whatever's on Dimsdale's chest, um, stirs the Chillingsworth to such a degree that he says, with a wild look of wonder, joy, and horror, with a ghastly rapture that could only be expressed in his eyes and features, he bursts forth with the ugliness of his figure, making a riotous manifest of extravagant gestures. He's going to throw up his arms to the ceiling, stamp his feet on the floor, kind of like he's some sort of rumpled Diltskin, jumping up and down, gleefully, um, just exulting in what uh, in what he sees. In fact, the writer describes it's how Satan does whenever somebody is lost to heaven and sent to hell. Wow, <laughs> this reminded me of the end zone touchdown dance yes! that a receiver will do when he scores a touchdown. There's just glee and joy at finding out whatever this deep secret is and what i thought was so interesting and funny at the same time hawthorne's talking about the ecstasy uh difference between satan and between chillingsworth and he says but what distinguished the physician's ecstasy from satan's was the trait of wonder in it in other words satan is bad Chillingsworth is just as bad with one additional bad characteristic, which means he's one degree worse than Satan oh at this gosh. point. Well, it does change his behavior because in chapter 11, uh, it says this, Roger Chillingworth had now a sufficiently plain path before it. So he knows whatever he saw on that chest absolutely confirms. He'd speculated, he had thought it was the doc, it was thought it was Dimsdale. Now, whatever's on that chest proves to him that Dimsdale is absolutely, without any doubt, it's not speculation anymore. He's the the baby daddy, and this is going to direct uh, his behaviors in a much more deliberate way. Uh, he's going to imagine a more intimate revenge. This is what it says: than any mortal had ever wrecked upon an enemy. To make himself the one trusted friend to whom should be confided all the fear, the remorse, the agony, the ineffectual repentance, the backward rush of sinful thoughts, expelled in vain. All that guilty sorrow hidden from the world whose great heart would have pitied and forgiven to be revealed to him, the pitiless, to him the unforgiving. Well, that's just a lot of hate. And my question is, what's motivating all this hate? What do you think? He took something that was mine. Is that I owned enough? Her. That's the great discussion. Obviously, Chillingsworth was shamed, but is shame enough to devote your life to destroying another person? You have no higher calling now than to direct, than to direct all of your energies into wiping out another human being. Well, and it does have kind of this interesting effect on Dimsdale. Dimsdale does become um, more ragged out, so to speak. He's more, uh, his body is just overcome. It's being gnawed and tortured by some black trouble of the soul. Uh, and as he descends into this physical decline, his reputation at church just goes up and up and up. Now, so he becomes this brilliant, popular 
preacher and everything he says, people just hang on to. For one reason, he um, speaks with some sort of humility and he says things like, I'm the worst sinner of them all. And everyone sits there and says, wow, he's not a sinner at all. If he's the worst sinner, then what about me? I don't have a chance. And it says uh, that it's gotten to the point that people suggested that he had the tongue of flame. Now, this is a biblical reference to Acts 2 in the New Testament. And what happens in the Bible, so Jesus uh, in in the Gospels goes to heaven. And now Jesus, from the Christian perspective, is God incarnate. So he walks on earth, and at the end of his life, he's crucified, he goes to heaven. And right before he goes to heaven, he tells his um, followers, there's a Holy Spirit that's going to come back. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be me. I'm going to come back. And so you have to go down to this room, and you're going to sit there, and you're going to wait on me to come back. But I'm not going to come back as a person. I'm going to come back as a spirit. So Jesus' followers go to the upper room. This is in Acts 2. And they come. Uh, they all sit in there for, I don't know, several days. And then the Holy Spirit, or God himself, descends upon him. And he descends with a physical tongue. It's called the tongue of flame. That's how it's called in the Bible. And so when they receive the tongue of flame, of course, St. Peter uh, becomes eloquent beyond all discussion. And this is a historical fact. Uh, He leaves that room, goes out into the city of Jerusalem, preaches a sermon so eloquent that it really starts... Christianity. Up to that point, Jesus had like a few hundred followers max. Well, when St. Peter gives the sermon, after receiving the tongue of flame, Christianity is launched into the world. So when you say that Demsdale is the embodiment of this tongue of spring, that means he has the power, the eloquency to launch his own religion. That's how, how eloquent this guy is. Well, I may be a little bit more base in my observation, <laughs> All I noticed that all the girls were going crazy for him in his church, and so this guy's become a rock star preacher with groupies, and that it's all the more he attempts to stay away from the women, the more he draws the women. That's a side note. I just think it's funny, but I have a much more serious observation about the character of Chillingsworth, and I've already proven I'm not a fan at this point, and there's a reason why I'm not a fan. Everybody who reads this book is going to superimpose their understanding of the world and the life experience on it. The more I watch Chillingsworth, the more I understand he is narcissistically personality disordered. What do you mean by that? He just exhibits all the characteristics of a disordered person. He uh, has this calculating lack of empathy. He has a deep shame wound, and a lot of narcissistic disordered behaviors are driven by shame. And if you ever want to cause a disordered narcissist to rage... What you do is you shame them, and they, they, they will lose control and lash out at that. And they are interpersonally exploitative. This whole idea, Chillens were purposely digging into the psyche of Dimsdale to get secrets on him is a very narcissistic behavior. And disordered narcissists love the idea of moral failure, Maybe you you would fail at business, you could fail professionally, you could fail at any number of things, but if you have a moral failing, narcissists latch onto that because they feel like that goes deep to the core and they can use that for for manipulation. So we have stalking, we uh, we also see 
Dimsdale intuitively feeling uncomfortable with it, but Dimsdale is a great victim for a narcissistic disorder person because they look for somebody that feels honor-bound to live by rules and codes because the narcissist knows they can turn around and use the rules and the codes against them. So we have Chillingsworth, who betrays nothing of his personal past, has even lied and created a false identity, purposely digging in and observing endlessly Dimsdale's most private behaviors, looking for things he can use and manipulate and use against him. Well, and Dimsdale is a victim of his own uh, moral conduct. I mean, he's a... He's a he's a preacher of the faith, and he and he's a Christian, and he's a Christian minister, and he's a, a true believer, and he doesn't want to be a bad person. But in his own mind, he is a bad person. He he will stand up, and he does. He stands up on on his pedestal on Sunday, and he says, "I whom you behold these black garments of the priesthood, I who ascend the sacred desk and turn my pale face heavenward." Take it upon myself to hold communion in your behalf with the uh, the most high omniscience. I, in whose daily life you did discern the sanctity of, um, of Enoch. And he goes on to say, I am a pollution. I am a lie. He believes that. And he says it with the passion of a person who will not and he cannot forgive himself. And he feels locked in. I don't want to tell because everyone loves me. And everyone is looking at me, and I really, truly do want to honor God with my life, but I, I can't forgive myself. And so what does he do? At night, he goes home after he has preached all these sermons, and he has in his closet, a secret closet under lock and key, a bloody scourge. In other words, he has a whip, and at night, he's going to whip himself and it says that he whips himself over and over again on his own shoulders and he laughs bitterly at himself uh, as he hurts himself and he fasts now that means he doesn't eat and he says he doesn't he fasts more than anybody uh, trying to purify his body and mind he's it's an act of penance he says and he keeps vigils in other words he won't sleep he hurts himself he like like cutting so to speak he cuts himself he deprives himself of food. He de- de- deprives himself of sleep to the point that he um, he wakes up or he looks up and he sees diabolic shapes grinning at him and mocking at him. So he's hallucinating and he tries to find forgiveness in these behaviors that are done in the darkness of night and he never does. Well, before I talk about Dimsdale... I have not let Chillingsworth off the hook yet. I got a few more things to say about that guy before we <laughs> move on. Um, if you go back to narcissistic injury, in this case, shame, which is Hester and him being shamed by another man, taking his wife and all those kind of things. Another deep aspect of the narcissistically disordered person is jealousy. And so the more he attaches to the idea of destroying Dimsdale, Dimsdale's getting ever more popular. And ever more regard. And the more Dimsdale is publicly self-effacing, the more he gains followers and support and people who love him. And to the narcissist, this would be just absolutely the worst thing that could happen. So the twin engines of shame and jealousy are driving the narcissism in 
Chillingsworth at this point, and it's going to drive Chillingsworth crazy. Now, to leave that and go to Dimsdale, I got a few things to say about that dude and what's going on that I find are interesting. First of all, he is a preacher, and the central message of the gospel of Christianity is grace. That can be interpreted as acceptance. The Bible is full of references to the grace of God, which means the acceptance of God, and the Congregationalist churches of that time period would have spent a lot of time extrapolating and theologizing about what grace is. So nobody's more understanding of the, the theology of grace than Dimsdale, but he will not apply it to himself. The whole idea is that grace is only necessary because of failure. He has a failure. He will not apply the grace to his failure that he tells everybody in his congregation to apply. And I find that interesting and what he wants to do is he wants to pay for the sin himself by self-flagellation, by self-denial. He's even potentially exhibiting uh, characteristics of an eating disorder over this. You, you sum up all those categories and ideas together, and you have Dimsdale so absolutely focused on himself that he, he uh, it's making his worldview smaller and smaller. So you've got this villain Chillingsworth, who is out to destroy him, and then you got Dimsdale out to destroy himself because he will not accept a failure. And I want to say this too about cognitive dissonance. We always have a view of who we think we are, and then things occur to disrupt that view of who we think we are, and you have to rethink who you are at that point. Dimsdale is completely unable to do that. He can't resolve the cognitive dissonance that he's feeling between his sin and the. Uh, the, the, the gospel of grace that he is so familiar with, the end result is terrible anxiety that's destroying Well, him. and I think this is one criticism that Hawthorne is making of the church at large. And it's not, he, I think he's criticizing religion. And of course, Christianity is the religion of the Puritans. It's the religion of Hawthorne's day. So of course, he's focused on that. But it can be said about any religion uh, and not Christianity. In fact, Christianity doesn't even encourage this, but the idea of uh, you you preach one thing and you can't live up to your ideals, and so you you create cognitive dissonance. You can't be you can't be who you want to be. So the church doesn't give you an out for that. And so I think he's saying this is what you create when you when you live in a world that has such tight control of behavior and so and so little grace in a community setting. People didn't forgive. You know if you were especially sexual sin. And that day, if you were going to have an affair or a problem in your marriage or if a girl showed up pregnant, what was going to happen? It was There was going to be no grace. The church would maybe preach grace, and the Bible preaches grace. I mean, that's what the cross symbolizes. The cross of, of Jesus, which is the symbol of Easter, is about the cross representing forgiveness of sin. But there is no forgiveness of sin, and the preacher himself does not forgive sin. That was going to be my question to you. And who is the least understanding of that message? The very man whose whole entire career is devoted to promoting that idea, he is massively failing in applying that idea to his own existence right here, and it's creating all kinds of havoc because of that. And so at the end of chapter 11, we see Hawthorne quoting Alexander Pope, uh, who says this, To the untrue man, the whole universe is false. It is impalpable. It shrinks to nothing. 
within his grasp. So his his world isn't real. I mean, whoever who what Dimsdale thinks of the world isn't really what it is because he can't. I don't know if he can't accept his own humanity, but he certainly won't forgive himself or allow himself to be human. Well, I find it interesting that another central tenet of the gospel of the Christianity he preaches is that you have to accept that you sin, and he just cannot say to himself, yeah, I did that. Uh, And this is what makes him so annoying to me. At the end of chapter 11, it says, the only truth that continued to give Dimsdale a real existence on this earth was the anguish in his inmost soul and the undisassembled expression of it in his aspect. In other words, he has completely embraced this anxious terribleness in his own soul, and that has become his reality, not the religion that he preaches. His self-absorption, to me, his self-absorption with his own internal workings is more important than anything else. And I think that gets expressed in chapter 12. And I've got some things we'll say about that as we move into chapter 12. But he leaves chapter 13 thinking that everything in the world revolves around his moral failure. Hmm. Well, in his mind it does. He is the center of his own world. And and it's interesting because he hasn't one time talked about his relationship with Hester or his relationship with his daughter. It's all about him. And the fact that he's a a minister in his mind makes him greater uh, than everybody else. And so, of course, uh, his moral failure is the event that has, from which all the stars revolve around. (laughs) I don't know what Hawthorne intended by the end of chapter 11, but as a reader, I came away with the fact that Dimsdale is imploding and self-destructing because he won't forgive himself. And he can't see out of himself. It's not even that he won't forgive himself. That's true, too. But he can't even see anything besides himself. And that's how blinding self-obsession is. And that's even contrasted with Chillingworth's narcissism. Which, by the way, before we move on, I want to say this. Um, Hawthorne's writing this in 1850. The field of psychology hasn't even been developed yet. We haven't. There's no DSM five that that Hawthorne could have gone to to get elements to create a character. Hawthorne deduced all these characteristics in Chillingsworth and Dimsdale by observing people around him. I'm so curious who these people were that Hawthorne watched in real life and extracted all these characteristics from to get these characters who really stand up to the psychological test of time. Well, it could have been more than one, because there's a lot of people I know fit this description. But anyway, chapter 12, um, Pearl's seven years old, so she's a little bit older, and I guess chapter 11, too, same age. We see um, the minister in the middle of the night, leaving his home, walking to the scaffold, and this is the second scaffold scene. Like I told you at the beginning of the of I think episode one, this book revolves around three central events. Scaffold scene number one was when Hester's up there by herself uh, with three-month little Pearl, and Dimsdale is in a balcony looking down on her. And, of course, Chillingworth is in the back. And this scene, it's in the middle of the night, and Dimsdale is going to get up on the scaffold. But the town's asleep. There's no peril of discovery. 
So he stands there. Uh, and of course, he thinks he's laughing and he's screaming, but it's really not. Nobody hears him. And he's standing on the scaffold, and all of a sudden, um, well, actually, there is one person who sees him, and it's Mistress Hibbins, the, <laughs> governor, witch. the governor's sister. And of course, she uh, is going to come out, stick her head out. She hears him scream. And, she, you know, I always interpret her going, ha 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 ha. Laughing at what she knows to be everyone else's absolute hypocrisy, she looks at this whole town as just full of blustering idiots who don't own who they are. So she's up there, she sees them, and everybody is um, congregating. Not everybody, the the VIPs of the community, because Governor Winthrop, who is dying, he's a saint, and so ever Hester is there at the house with him. The doctor, of course, is there. Some of the ministers are there. So after he dies, they all walk through town past the scaffold. And the first person to walk past uh, is Mr. Wilson. He passes by, and in his mind, he reaches out to Wilson, and he talks to him and says, Oh, come out here. But he doesn't actually say anything out loud, so it's super dark, and the father, Wilson, just walks on by. So the next person that... Um, comes by rather shortly uh, is Hester and Little Pearl, and he engages in a discussion with them that's really interesting. And he says, come on up here. Uh, come, uh, what are you doing? And, and of course, um, Pearl talks to him too. Can I interrupt for a moment? Sure. This is what I find interesting. So as I'm reading this, here we have Dimsdale standing on the scaffold in the middle of the night, shrieking, trying to get out whatever emotional demons are, are haunting him at this time period. And I'm a little confused as one by one, all these people start showing up to see him on the scaffold. And what I would like to point out before we find out why they're there is this whole idea. He thinks they're all coming in response to his screaming, his lungs out in the middle of the night and his emotional pain, and they're not. Wow, that's interesting. So it is, it's still about him standing mm-hmm. up there. He's trying to get forgiveness without doing anything to get forgiveness. Is that a thing? Well, he's trying this method. Um, to me, it goes back to the central message of his, of his preaching that he's never applying to himself. But yes, he's going through a number of ways to try to pay for his sins, self-flagellation, self-punishment self-injury even so he's going to engage the two uh, girls and he says um come up here Heth, Hest, H- come up hither hester thou <laughs> and little pearl ye have both been here before but i was not with thee come up hither once again and we will stand all three together and of course she climbs up there um the minister grabs um pearl's hands and so you have this really pretty image to me of the dad the little girl and the mom and the story says and this is kind of the supernatural romantic element of the book of course it's not scientific but when he grabs her hands he gets a rush of life a new life other than his own and it pours through him like a torrent into his heart hurrying through all his veins as if the mother and the child were communicating their vital warmth to his half-torpid system. It says the three formed an electric chain. Good, good imagery there. 
To me, that speaks to the whole idea, and I think Hawthorne went to great lengths to try to paint a picture of Dimsdale's isolation, and his isolation was growing even worse, and now he has an enemy that is pursuing him deeper into isolation. He has one moment where he stands up there on a scaffold what, with what is really his true family. And, of course, Pearl looks at him and says, Well, that's down here with me, with Mother and me tomorrow, Neemtide? And he's going to say, no, uh, but I will stand up here on another day, but not tomorrow. And, of course, Pearl laughs and attempts to pull away her hand, but he won't let her. And he says, a moment longer, my child. And then she's going to say, but wilt thou promise to take my hand and mother's hands tomorrow noontide? Not then, Pearl, but another time. At what other time? And he's going to say, at the great judgment. Then and there before the judgment seat, thy mother and thou and I must stand together. But the daylight of this world shall not see our meaning. So he plans on going to the grave. He's never, never, never going to own her. And he tells her that. And he tells Pearl that. And I don't know. That's kind of an insult. Oh, that's extremely painful to stand out there in this glorious moment. And it goes on to say, and there stood the minister with his hand over his heart. And Hester Prynne, with the embroidered letter glittering on her bosom, and Little Pearl herself a symbol, and the connecting link between those two. So you've got this grand moment of peace where they're together, and he's still not, he's not going to trade his secret in order to have a family. And this makes me hate him, because he has hung her out to dry for seven years and seven, of course, is the number of completeness or God or divinity or however you want to look at it. And, and they're standing there as a, as a threesome, which also is a very archetypal number. And he says, no, I will never own you. I will never own you except after I'm dead. And Hester has already owned everything. And, of course, we see, and I haven't talked about this, uh, the reactivation of the symbol a. And the symbol A, the scarlet letter, of course it changes the meaning. What does it mean? Nobody really knows. In the beginning, when she puts on the A, it clearly means adultery. But right now, as they're standing up there, there's a light in the sky, and an A is going to form over them. Uh, God himself is speaking. And of course, um, the town looks at it, and the next day, and they think uh, the meteor is supposed to be the sainthood of the governor that died. Right. The A stands for angel regarding the governor who had just died. And, of course, Dimsdale and his self-obsession felt like the whole universe conspired to write a blazing A in the sky to accuse him. Yeah, this guy's being made miserable by his inability to um, forgive and even give grace to Hester and Pearl. And I would like to add, he's doing this all in the name of religion. He feels like he's protecting the reputation of God by not loving these people openly. And, of course, Chillingworth is going to come along. Now, Chillingworth isn't going to walk by unnoticed. He's going to engage. And um, this also, this just makes me, me hate him so much. So he's walking by, and Dimsdale looks at Hester and says, who is that man, Hester? I shiver at him. Shriv, shiver at him. Dost thou know the man? I hate him, Hester. And of course, she remembers her oath and is silent. And he goes on to say, 
Who is he? Who is he? Canst thou do nothing for me? I have a nameless whore of the man. So he takes more responsibility and puts it on Hester. Do something about that guy. But do, fix it to me is what he's basically saying. And, of course, Pearl goes, Minister, I can tell thee who he is. And he <laughs> says, sure. And she leans down and says something hateful in his ear, which we don't know what it is. And he, and he goes, ha, 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 ha. She laughs at him. And he says, dost thou mock me? And she's going to say this. Thou wast not bold. Thou wast not true. Thou wast not promised to take my hand in my mother's tomorrow noontide. She calls him out. And then the next day, however, being the Sabbath, he preached a discourse which was held to be the richest and the most powerful and the most replete with heavenly influences that had ever proceeded from his lips. So after all this crazy night on the scaffold, he preaches a magnificent sermon that moves everybody. And ironically, they find his glove out by the scaffold. And they, they of course, a sexton returns it. And he says, I found it uh, where evildoers are set upon public shame. Satan dropped it there. I take it intending a scurrilous jest against your reverence. But indeed, he was blind and foolish, as he ever and always is. Of course, we've made Satan into this black and white villain. A pure hand needs no glove to cover it. Oh, my. Oh, my. So they bring up the... the he's talking about the um, with the old sexton about what had happened. And the sexton said, Did you see the great letter A, which was inter- we interpret to be an angel? Our good governor was made an angel, and I'm sure that's why it was there. And he lies. The last thing out of his mouth is, no, I had not heard of it. Why lie about that? Well, the last section, we're going to try to cover some some ground, a lot of ground in the next section. Uh, chapter 13 through the end of the book. We're going to go back and relook at um, chapter 13 probably is my favorite chapter. Nothing happens necessarily, but we see what seven years has done to Hester as Dimsdale becomes weaker and more horrible and I think just just a sketch of a human and Chillingworth becomes more aggressive and more obsessed Hester has had a different uh, experience over the last seven years and what's happened to her so we're going to read to see what has been the result of the seven year punishment on her life and then we're going to see how it all concludes out on the last and final scaffold scene Great. We've got plenty to look forward to in the next episode. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. 
at Vesco Distributors, Inc.